0: Yes. Um, just kind of thinking about... I, well, I was reading this morning and then um, I was really sick in I particular the hospital. But this was the verse that I had written down right before that. So I thought maybe you could comment on this verse. Um, so it's It
1: says, Know for certain whatever worldly distress is seen in a Vaishnava is actually spiritual happiness. Sure Happiness.
0: Happiness. Well, um, there's probably a couple of ways to think about that, but um, one of them is um, I, I guess the idea of or the extent to which uh excuse me, any devotee is under the influence of karma is uh, an issue and um Chakovithakura, I think it's more or less an advocate of erring on the side of caution with regard to the emphasis on the efficacy of bhakti. Hmm. <laughs> so um, he tends, in his writing, to um, very much minimize the uh, ability, the extent of karma's influence in the life of a devotee. Hmm. Still, um, um, other commentators from would be, more conservative and and they may that may somewhat also be due to uh, the circumstances by the time Vishwanathra Dhakur was uh, commentating commenting excuse me uh, the Sampradaya was had been in place for you know for some time and um, this idea of Bhakti's efficacy um, is, uh, was a bit of a, you know, something to sell, if you will. Jiva Goswami had to sell, rather new, as it would appear, in the religious, uh, environment idea, um, and the whole concept of Uttam, Bhakti, and so forth. So, um, he, you know, for example, says that yes, it's removal of karma is immediate, just like if you were a string, A garland of uh, flower petals then if you take a bunch of flower petals like this and put a needle through them they all go through at once right just one but if you look carefully the needle pieces pierces each one separately so at the same time he's saying all at once it's all done you're involved in bhakti it's done still it removes the karma piece by piece gradually and he says in his uh, uh, his commentary on Bhakti Srimad Sindhu that the the Aparabdha is removed first. I mean, excuse me, the prabda, the prabda karma is removed first, and the upper is removed later, based on verses of Bhagavatam which say um, that one who is chanting the holy name, third canto of Bhagavatam. Uh, immediately becomes qualified to perform the, um, duties of a Brahmin, such as Vedic sacrifices and so forth, which requires a certain karma within the Varnashram. If you don't have the karma, and the, which means the Brahminical disposition and qualities that go with it, then you can't, and it, you can't do somebody else's, you can't do that occupation. You, Gita says, you, you, Stick to your own occupation, even if there's a fault in it, because there's a fault in all of them. It's mundane. Uh, rather than trying to do somebody else's uh, because of a fault in your own. Um, so there's, there's no place for, in the Varnashram for sudras doing the work of Brahmins, but if they chant the holy name, it's said that they can immediately perform such sacrifice, which would mean that their paravda karma, which would inhibit them from such, has been removed, hmm. but Sanatana Goswami and uh, I believe sorry Bhakti Bhilas has given the idea that that a, that a some some measure of the prarabdha karma is removed enough to allow one to engage in such, but not not all of it hmm. um, immediately, and uh, and then of course there's the upper Rabdha karma and so forth, so. It, 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 you know, this verse brings to mind different ideas um, as to, or notions as to the extent to which karma is operative in a life of, uh, of any devotee. I think talk Thakur does it acknowledge a, kind of a gradual uh, removal of the anarthas arising, sukritartha, duskritartha, arising from... Good karma or bad karma. So in that sense, you could say he does acknowledge that there's good and bad karma in the lives of sadhakas up until I think. Uh, well, it must be bhava bhakti that they're irrevocably um, removed. The or he's or she, or she is freed from the from the anarthas arising from good or bad karma. As far as I can tell, whatever arises from good or bad karma is pretty much an anartha. So so um so uh, i'm saying this because there's there's two ways to look at at that one way to look at it is that the distress of a devotee hmm, is what happiness? Hmm? Yeah, happiness is 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 spiritual happiness so when we we can look at it aside from the karmic influence we'll come back to that and and say that a devotee who is experiencing the distress for example which would be uh, suffering internally because of compassion for others paravukutu ki pamburi this is the vaishnav's characteristic he or she has no suffering except for the the pain of others that uh, that, that he or she identifies with or There's the pain of separation from Krishna that makes the heart grow fonder. And in spiritual life, which is the converse of material life, uh, the opposite, um, even the bad, even the distress is happiness. And here in material life, even the happiness is distress, right? It's the beginning of distress because you, you like something because you acquired it and you can't keep it. And in, in due course, the very same thing is going to bring distress. Um, so there are also the lives of great devotees, like the Pandavas is a, is a prominent example, who experienced a lot of distress in their lives. Hmm? But it was Shobhana karma. It is arrangement of Bhagwan, beautiful karma. Hmm? For the sake of Leela teaching... As, as may be the case so we shouldn't think although the, the Pandavas were troubled hmm? they were exiled their, their house was burned and so on and so forth that they were uh, uh, not blissful hmm? so whatever happened to them is is, is in the hands of Bhag- is the arrangement of Bhagawan and it's happy something like that um, so in the highest sense of a devotee whether we may see apparent happiness or distress in their life, but it's just the opposite of material life, where even happiness is distress, even the distress is happiness. It's the way in which Bhagavan is dealing with them. So you might look at it like that, like the full idea of a devotee. It can only be... I mean, what is the verse from Chaitanya Charitamrita I like to cite? Um, hmm? From under- no. he's mm-hmm. got The wonderful characteristic of praying is that it looks like poison on the outside, but it's blissful on the inside. So uh, um, Devotees like Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, well, uh, he's the best devotee you could find. He was weeping and wailing and even perspiring blood during the Rathayatra. Yatra. Hmm? It was a hori bowl. Yeah, <laughs> it's a hori <horrible>. bowl. <laughs> it's, so, it's, so people could look at that and they have and said, it doesn't look like something I'd want to do. Uh, uh, so on the outside it, it looks disconcerting, but on the inside, Bhitre Anandamai is full of. Um, spiritual uh, happiness and then um, we go back, if you will, to a lower um, standard where, the, let's say, the devotee is still influenced by karma so then it's a philosophical uh, perspective that allows the karma, karmic influences that are exhausting themselves by playing themselves out in some we would say minimized form of what they should have been because of our uh, being under the influence of, of bhakti, and with that kind of philosophical outlook, tate nukampam susamikshamana bhunane batna kritambri pakam ridvagbapubeh redam namaste jiveta yo bhakti sate yo mukti sateya bhakti sarvabhoma batta charja kijaya. That's the verse you tried to change. So. So it says that the devotee goes on tolerating hmm, the um, results of still of his karma and um, seeing them as kind of as kind of a blessing. He sees his enemies who cause him distress as agents through which the karma that he's due in a minimized form is coming now and retiring itself. So. If you if every if you know I've got this much karma left and everybody that comes is lowering it I'm, I'm happy I'm, I'm, that's, that's great let it one you know, has to have some strong standing in bhakti obviously it has to be in like anishta strong standing in bhakti to be able to take that on look at it philosophically and be happy about it. Hmm. I would say, you know, take the pictures of your enemies and put them on your altar. Worship them. So, so, thank you very much for relieving me of this burden without plugging in and responding to it and perpetuating it and so forth. So I think there's kind of a philosophical happiness, uh, that, uh, in, 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 in knowing, if you will, that to be the case. And then on the higher end, there's happiness in Devotees' life that may appear outwardly as distressed because it's all in the context of uh, the play of Krishna. Is that out? Yeah. What else? Yes? What if you don't know where that stressor is coming from? It's coming from your past. <laughs> it's coming from so seeds you've sown, how you're reaping the fruits and you can say maybe say you don't know what's coming you don't know who to worship <laughs> where where uh, you you know you know it doesn't have to be necessarily attributed to a particular agent uh individual it could, um, most of our stress does come from interacting with other humans <laughs> uh, but uh, we get sick hmm? right not that we blame someone else necessarily uh, um, and so forth. So uh, we don't have to attach an, an, an external, external agency to it, but we draw back to the idea that I am the agency. That I am, you know, I've sown the seeds, and now they've come in this way. And and, um, and to you know, in the context of that, you take shelter of Krishna. Krishna's um, um, Bringing me closer to him, some, somehow my karma has been mediated to some extent. It, it should have been, but it should have been worse. Uh, something like that uh, is a way to also think about how the parabdha is minimized enough that you can participate. I mean the karmic debt is such that I've given the example before of having a credit card debt where you, you've maxed out your cards and you're really only working just to pay the credit card. Debts and you have no, you know, you have no life of your own. You can't go to the movies. So you got every penny's got to go to pay the, pay the card. It's something like that. Um, so, some reprieve comes through the influence of bhakti, so through sangha You get bhakti, and the debt is still there, but it's, it now bhakti's influence is there, so that it is negotiated, down a bit, and you know you can you can have a little bit little bit of a life. You still got some debt to pay but you got a life hmm? instead of going to the movies you can go to the Arctic now <laughs> right'll become your entertainment uh, big screen it's a window into the into the world of, of Krishna, the wonderful world of Krishna it should start a show. Um, so uh, something like that how uh, how to, how to uh, think about it. does that help?
1: A lot says something to the effect that anybody that thinks that someone else is the cause of this distress is mm-hmm. in the greatest delusion.
0: Uh-huh. So. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone th- who thinks that someone else is the cause of their distress is deluded, hmm. it is extremely deluded. <laughs> so no blaming, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's uh that's a high, um, standard. Um, of course, um, I've said also in order to have that attitude, we may need to, there's the two things, you know, you tolerate the, you do, so to speak, coming as it does, often through other agents, um, but at the same time, we are mandated to create or look for a favorable environment. Hmm? So you need to create a favorable environment for your practice and tolerate it within that. Hmm? You may be tolerating something but not attending to the necessity, the mandate of creating a fire a favorable environment. So then you won't have the strength to tolerate. And part of that favorable environment that you create in order that you can tolerate rather than just, well, I should tolerate this, what can I do? There's things that you can do that don't constitute not tolerating, and, and they involve creating a favorable environment, right? So that you might, in the context of creating in a favorable environment, also create some distance between those that are um, giving you a good exercise in tolerance. <laughs> hmm? and uh, well distance if you have distance from them then you can um you can you, you can tolerate them something like that uh so we're mandated to tolerate but we're also mandated to create a favorable environment and uh distancing ourselves from an unconducive environment may give us the power to tolerate and still think favorably, let us see, uh, as we're supposed to, of those who are um, devotees who may be hard to tolerate up close. Or other people who we're supposed to respect, all living beings and so forth, you may need a little distance from them in order to be able to respect them. So this is the fine balance between tolerating and then that we're mandated to do. This is part of the decorum. Of a devotee, as Mahaprabhu said, tolerance, Uh, uh, humility, tolerance, respecting others, expecting no honor. This is the decorum of the devotee. These are another way of looking at the, 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 you know, the the regulative principles or something of uh, of bhakti. They are actually, you know, what would you call them? They are like a subset to bhakti proper itself. Hmm. Right, humility ultimately turns into 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 bhakti proper, hmm. into course in, 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 But but at any rate, um, Mahaprabhu says, with these things in place, then you, then you can attain praying by chanting the holy name. So, in order to decorate oneself in that way, one has to create a favorable environment. Then you don't have to go look for an environment. So I've been asked sometimes, you know, I've been told or advised. Nothing like unsolicited advice. Um, that if I was to join another institution, whose name I won't mention, I would have a great opportunity to develop tolerance. Hmm. I said I've got plenty of opportunities. for that. I don't need any extra opportunity to uh, develop tolerance. Uh, just knowing about that when I got a it dog, it's giving me, a, it's helping me sometimes. So. Something like that. So you don't need to throw yourself into a, an environment that is uh, intolerable and to say, therefore, I should be able to tolerate it. But both things are there. Tolerate, you must, and create a favorable environment for your practice, you must. So that helps. Yes. Okay, good. What else? Yes. Uh, so... All of my college friends have started asking me things like where'd you get your name and what's this necklace and what are you all about. And I was looking for some advice on what to say to them based on their backgrounds, because some of them are Christian, some of them are atheists, some are personalists. A lot of hippies that are just looking for what to talk about. Uh-huh. Um Well, I would say um now what you're about is um, that you have confidence in the idea that consciousness is not a product of the brain. Mm. That should be go, whoa. <laughs> huh. Kind of interesting. With that kind of a um, put forward, if you will you can you can bring in all those groups of people hippies are always the consciousness they have no idea what it means you know higher consciousness you know and then they go down <laughs> uh, I was one of them so so uh, then in uh, the Christians of course they um, There are good uh, Christian uh, uh, philosophers who have gotten into, who are schooled in like philosophy of mind, and make a strong case against uh, physicalism, naturalism—the idea that there's nothing other than physical matter that is that that reality is constituted of. Hmm? So uh, there's. you know, ones you may not be meet that may not be schooled with that, but but it's a, it's basically an argument for the idea that life has meaning, purpose, overarching value, um, and so forth. That there is a soul, you can say, and that I'm a soul, and this is how the language in which we talk about it. Hmm? So I believe you can say that that ah uh, that there the consciousness is not the brain and what I am is consciousness and uh, that's like um, like being a soul something like that and along with that means that that life has purpose meaning, value there aren't just atoms bouncing around rubbing into one another bumping into one another um, without any 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 meaning behind that Hmm? and um, and you can say, and I think that, you know, I think that Christianity would agree um, with that. And then, beyond that, I'm I'm affiliated, you could say, to the Christians with a Hindu uh, tradition. Yeah, don't hmm? the altar. it freaks them out. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm affiliated with a Hindu tradition that uh, is uh, that that when the British christian orientalists they were called scholars went to india felt was the closest thing to christianity Hmm? so you could say a lot of hinduism is doesn't believe that there's a god but there's just this pulsating consciousness that we're one with but in my tradition we believe in a personal god and uh, so forth so that might you know be an opening with them. And then, with the atheists, the consciousness argument is also very good because if they know their stuff, then then they then they believe that there's nothing other than physical matter, hmm? and there's no meaning or purpose to life other than what we create or make up as a purpose, which is not like I want to say ontologically rooted. It's not absolute. There's no really you, know, you decided something meant something, okay. Doesn't in any larger sense, um, but uh, you believe that there are things that do matter. That there is real truth. There is real good. There is real bad, and so forth. And even that is also determined somewhat on an ongoing basis. But anyway, I mean, I mean that's just an in for everybody, if you will, and then you can you, know, you can you know you can very simply say I don't believe that everything is physical matter. I believe that there's something called consciousness that's independent of matter and that um, that um, it's not reducible to a brain. And you've heard me talk about that, so you can make some arguments. So It's kind of an in, because it's really a core, central theme to uh, really any um, spiritual tradition. And at the same time, being the being the core issue of any spiritual tradition, it is free from a lot of religious baggage and um, maybe outdated perspectives um, on the uh, the moral right, which, as I say, is determined in an ongoing way with reason and scripture together a lot of people in the atheistic community they reject religion because of religious baggage baggage out what seem to be outdated ideas about good and bad that come from a book from another civilization hmm? they reject it on that so you just kind of instead of you, you don't you don't have to bring that up you bring about what they're missing by their atheistic preoccupation which is the essential Idea of consciousness being being different from matter that um, that the mystical traditions have identified with, and um, that's much more reasonable and appealing to them than laying some old uh, you know dogma from times gone by. As far as the moral argument goes, of course, it's important to point out that. Moral. I sent you that. You see that word. Moral. Krishna says in the in the Bahabharata, for example, moral uh, principles are determined uh, in an ongoing way with the help of reason. So, some people say that they just take it from the scripture, but the scripture doesn't answer for all circumstances. So, circumstances will arise in which you have to apply the general principle and come up with a. A right or a wrong in a, in a given circumstance, and in time, the nature of the world is, is, is that, is that uh, there's always new information about the world. In my opinion, there's unlimited uh, knowledge about the nature of the material world. It's ongoing, and it reveals itself in different times, and circumstances, cultures. So if you if you look at what might be a progressive social idea that is objected to by perhaps a religious conservative, but contains, by its application, the essential spiritual component of compassion, let's say, in relation to a phenomenon that was not understood previously that is better understood now by exploring in greater detail the nature of the material world and how it works and so forth. Hmm? Then you come up with a new n- new law. There are moral principles, but the laws may be adjusted according to time, just like law books are there, but then the, what the law is in every day is determined in court in an ongoing way. Hmm? So you know, let's take for example. Let's take homosexuality for example. Okay. So there are different perspectives on that. But one perspective on it is that years ago, homosexuals thought that they were, they were, they were uh, some kind of aberration that was demonic, and um, and they should they should be banished, you know, to the Australia or something—I don't know. You know, where <laughs> so they used to send criminals or something. It's probably where it properly got that idea that somebody was quoting. you uh, were quoting the other day, but yeah, give them Prussian. So, uh, so if, if homosexuals themselves didn't understand the phenomenon and thought, for example, this is a choice I've made and I shouldn't be making it; it's wrong, and so forth. To later to find out it wasn't a choice, but they're hardwired like that, and so on and so forth. There's new information that even they have arrived at. What well, to speak of other people who are viewing the phenomenon. Hmm? So, that's like, in my opinion, that's knowledge that it's, that it's not a choice. I mean, you know, you have this choice, whether it's in this idea of, what is it, nurture or nature, so is it nurture, something that's cho- that's chosen, and in in, in, a, in a given environment, or is it nature that it and it's, uh, an, um, that it's that uh, it's an aspect of the, the natural varied order of the natural world, something like that. So it's not that there's not much of an argument about that anymore. If you say it's nurture, then the only way that you can say it is that somehow in the upbringing in the earliest part there was some some, some environmental influences that caught, you can't trace it out but chose it which <laughs> is bad as being natured, you know rather than nurtured it's not uh, a conscious choice then so but uh, so i think that that's kind of an interesting point for example or 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 an interesting example the whole world everybody uh, I mean, you, you can, you, the point being also that you can fully transcend material existence and know everything. Right? In other words, if you transcend something, you've gone above it. So you know it, essentially. But the kind of knowing that we arrive at by transcending does not include detailed knowledge of every aspect of the thing that we transcended. Because if we had been preoccupied with that, we probably wouldn't have transcended it. Mm-hmm. So there's an essential understanding of what is the nature of the maya shakti Hmm? and the bhagavatam focuses on this giving us impetus to transcend it and come to a kind of knowing that no other type of knowing compares to that leaves one feeling like i don't need to know anything else else i know myself Hmm? in the context of bhakti i know my prospect but i don't know how to build a, a jet plane or any number of other things and um, and so we shouldn't look at a at a, at a, at a sage as um, uh, you know that this guy for example what's his name uh, the, the famous atheist uh, in recent times younger one of the younger Harris. ones Sam Harris. Sam Harris he has this um, idea he says that the, the transcendentalist so called the meditator the yogi in the cave, he by by pursuing that path, he will not arrive at knowledge of quantum mechanics, etc., 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 and yeah, there's some truth to that, you won't necessarily arrive at knowledge of quantum mechanics or the Big Bang or whatever is out there that might be true or might not be true, but let's say it is it 's just one particular perspective on material nature and how it works, one aspect of it I mean science is looking at trying to understand matter, and it's kind of a piecemeal thing you know if you understand you may understand matter from a certain vantage point also hmm? you know the proverbial elephant right somebody's got the tail, somebody's got the tusk, somebody's got the horn, what do they call it a trunk you know. And somebody's pulling on the ear and everybody says the elephant's like this, and they're all right. Hmm? Yeah. So by meditation, you know, you may say it's an elephant, and I'm moving on, you know, <laughs> whatever, but you might not know exactly what the trunk feels like or, or or to be speared by the you know the tusk or something like that. Uh, so yeah, you might not know about quantum mechanics, but he's presuming when he makes that statement that quantum mechanics, for example, or the Big Bang is a truth, an absolute truth about the nature of how the material world works. It may be a truth. It may not be a truth. Uh, some. Or it, or it may be more likely a partial truth, and an, a, a way of looking at it. I mean, from the Gaudi perspective, of course, the sankhya perspective, the theistic sankhya perspective. You can go to the moon, but it's all in your mind. So is everything else that you're doing. Hmm. In other words, the the world that you're seeing and engaging in, the reason we see it as similar, you see a tree, I see a tree, we say it's a tree because we're all looking at it through the human lens. Hmm? So we're all playing in this human world. Mosquitoes are playing in the mosquito world. Hmm? Dogs are playing in the dog world, hmm? relative worlds. So really, it's a consciousness-driven world. There's something out there called matter and... It's a, per, it. But we are living in a perception of it, and you can mm-hmm. never get at the virgin mm-hmm. state of it. The so yogis can manipulate it. Hmm? So the yogis can manipulate it. Yeah, on some gross level. So maybe, so can maybe the, uh, the, the the scientists manipulate. But they're manipulating their perception of it. It's all. What was that? Did you backfire?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, so, so that's a very interesting idea that that allows you for example to have sukadev's perception that he reveals in the Bhagavatam as to you know the what the world is like in the 5th canto hmm? so if you get into the sukadev consciousness or or the or the yogic perspective on the world that he was trying to explain you can see it in that way hmm? so um, so yeah sam you know mr harris Uh, but you have a certain conclusion that you begin with that this is an absolute fact that the world works like this. It works like this in some pragmatic way. Uh, 60%, I think, two-thirds of our economy is run on the basis of quantum mechanic, quantum, quantum theory. Hmm? So you posit it with mathematics and so whether this is what's happening and then you, you turn it into a pragmatic result and you create this gizmo and that gadget and and so forth and so you say hey this is pretty real you know but uh, all you're really doing is creating a a pragmatic result for human convenience human conscience for human beings how much does it pertain to other beings and their perception and and so forth so anyway he has a premise that he begins with hmm, that um, that there's something that, worth knowing that you won't know by by meditation. He said, you know, we, we mapped this guy's brain in meditation and he was in a higher state of consciousness, this oneness thing, but he he had no idea what was going on. He didn't know that this neuron was firing and that neuron was firing and that. And I said, when I heard that, when he, Sam, you didn't know what was going on. <laughs> you know, you've got to get inside of his experience. And then he would say... You don't know what you're talking about here. Yes, these neurons are firing, but they're not creating my state, as you assume. Hmm? But they are the way in which my state plays itself out in relation to a brain that I'm identified with. So it it could equally work both ways. Not equally, but more so the other way, in other words. Yes, it's a given. In other words, the correlation between... Brain st- conditions and states of mind, for example, is a given in our philosophy. It's a huge find in science. Look at, look at the correlation between brain and mind. And then from that to say, therefore, mind is really the brain. We, we, we already accept that there's a correlation between the brain and a mind, like there is between a glove and a hand. Right? But we don't think that the hand is the is, is product of the glove. <laughs> Right, so we we say that we are embodied, and we've and this consciousness is ref, is reflecting um, on subtle matter as it, as subtle matter has the capacity to to reflect consciousness, and out of that comes to physical matter, and so on and so forth. So it's it's a given that conscious states of consciousness are going to have a corresponding physical um, expression. Hmm. So at any rate. Point being, the transcendentalist can arrive at a kind of knowing that is 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 comprehensive, in that in that the purpose of knowing there's a purpose to knowing. What is the purpose? What do you want by knowing? People are gathering knowledge. What do they want to arrive at? Just a headful of thoughts and information? No. It, it, what is the value of knowledge without a practical application of it? The purpose of knowledge is to is is that now you can apply yourself in an informed way. And so, what do you want? You want to be happy. <laughs> That's pretty simple. That's what you, you want. You want to be happy. You want to be free from misconceptions, from doubts, whatever. Uh, uh, but, and basically, there's a good argument that everybody's moving for the purpose of being happy. And so, there's a kind of knowledge by which you can know There's a happiness that is inherent in your being, Atmananda, hmm, that constitutes, in one sense, freedom from the problems that the physical and psychological and biological self is subject to, like death, hmm, like old age, like disease, and so forth. So there's a huge relief in knowing that. If you knew today, by experience... Hmm? As you that you were never going to die, and that that everything that was happening to your body was not happening to you, you know it theoretically. And sometimes you get some experience. But if you knew, I mean, you'd be pretty pretty relaxed there, <laughs> pretty happy, right? Mm-hmm. You'd have no worries. So they are arriving at this kind of knowledge. Yeah, they may not know about quantum mechanics or Big Bang or something, but that doesn't mean they don't know anything. They know the world in a more comprehensive way. Hmm? Now that doesn't mean that there aren't all kinds of details about the world that they don't know. Hmm? That's a given. So when we say he's enlightened, he's all-knowing, it doesn't mean that he or she knows, um, how to bake bread even, you know. Uh, or, and it also, it can imply that there are facts, if you will, or things about the world That will come to light over time. That haven't come to light as of yet, and as they do, then you 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 adjust materially speaking accordingly to deal with 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 them. Hmm? Um, Why not? It's there's there's no there's no limit to the material world. It's not like a, a finite bubble or something like that. There's infinite number of jivas. That means well, infinite. Infinite number of jivas. It's, it's, yes, it's, it's a, it's a a ekapad vibhuti as opposed to the tripad vibhuti. You know, a a partial manifestation rather than the, the, you know, the the full manifestation. But that statement isn't to be taken as like a mathematical kind of like the spiritual world is this big and the material world is this big, right? It means there are certain aspects of reality that are not manifest in the material realm that are manifest in the spiritual world, hmm? in that dimension. It doesn't mean the material world is, Is you know, if you drive so many miles in that direction, you're going to come to the end of it, right? So, and, and, and what is it? Again, practically speaking, it's a particular perception. It's, it's a transformation of the gunas at its core, the subtlest form of matter are these gunas, the three gunas. That's why Sugadev when he began his explanation on the nature of, of the material world at the request of Pariksha, he said, well, basically it's the, it's the transformation of the gunas. No one can fully understand it, but I'll tell you what the Puranas have said about it, how they describe it and so forth. Hmm? So, so there's, uh, there's, new, new, there's new information. That you could have, then you can, then, and on the basis of that, about the world, moral principles, can moral laws can change. Mm-hmm. Let's take another example. Let's say you know there is, um, just in a practical sense, there are uh, so many trees on Earth that it's nobody ever had to deal with a a ethical or moral concern about cutting down a tree in order to you know build a house or something like that now it's different right one can argue that there that a lot of trees have been cut down we built a lot of you know parking lots right mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well Johnny and then, uh, and and now, um, it's a moral issue, an ethical issue, of concern: whether, how, how many, under what conditions, to cut down trees. Obviously, thousands of years ago, it wasn't an issue because. You didn't have chainsaws either. It was harder to cut them down in the first place. You didn't have big tractors and and, and, and so on and so forth. And there was plenty of them. And it wasn't, uh, you know, say, say an environmental crisis or something like that, if you, if you look at it from that angle a vision. So there's a new, a new conditions. Hmm? And there's new knowledge, too. Because prior to the industrial civilization, you could say there wasn't the knowledge of what would happen to the atmosphere if you had this many less trees until it happens now there's new knowledge that comes right hmm? so it's not like the sages of yore I mean they they, they knew that if you cut down this many trees and, and, and then you use it to, to in, in an industrial sense that you could pollute the atmosphere and you know I mean they were friendly to the environment uh, you know they had a kind of an environmental perspective in that way Hinduism is, is has regard for nature and so on and so forth you could argue it never would have gone in that way under that uh, if that perspective prevailed or something like that but it has and so now we're finding out things that we wouldn't know otherwise it means new knowledge is emerging In the world, so now there are new, new, new laws. How to think about it, and um, so, so, uh, such is the nature of, of the world, Hmm. Um, and that's why we have a guru parampara also, which has to weigh in on moral sensibilities in an ongoing way, and apply essential spiritual principles in an ongoing way in new, in new circumstances in order to get the get the desired result. And we can't just repeat something from a book. You have to like if you want to make a case to the judge, you have to cite the book, but then you have to also put it all together. You can't say, judge, the law said this, the law said this, the law said that. You're saying therefore, I think because of this, because of that, because of those circumstances and this circumstance and so forth. So you can't. It's just not a, a, a memory thing. You know, a parrot parroting. The teachings, there has to be some yukti, some, some reasoning hmm, as to what is the essential spiritual truth and its application in an ongoing way in every instance. And the same holds true on a lower level with the moral law. Hmm? So it's, it's not just there's shastra yukti with regard to determining... The yukti means reasoning. So reasoning based on shastra. So you take the shastra and then you reason about it according to time and the circumstance and so forth. And you arrive at a dynamic application of it. Hmm? So I guess I say the same thing holds with the moral principles. You can't, you can't argue for one and not the other. Hmm? Um, I mean the moral life is some type of underpinning, if you will, of, a, of the spiritual life. Hmm. So important. And who asked a question? Yeah. Where well, we go? Okay. Tell that to. Tell that to them. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> okay. Some follow up. You want more? Say, say, something you want to say something
1: else. I guess also, what about impersonalism?
0: How do we address that? How do we address that? Yeah. Um. Well, with the Christians, I would say that we, we, we don't we don't um, that is a that that is a um, something that we don't um, embrace. They're fine with that. They like that. Um, the hippies, they could be kind of impersonalist. And the way I would so the way I would address that with them, let us say, maybe they have some idea about spirituality. They think they do, and it's all one. You know, kind of they could come without at you with that it's all one, and so forth. Then what I would do is i would um I would emphasize love that's a pretty popular topic among the give them a hug and <laughs> say uh, say that um in order to love hmm, there has to be two, the two have to be one. so then you present this idea about a d- dynamic oneness rather than a static oneness where all the many are really the one, and you take off the covering that makes this difference, and we're all just one big pulsating one, um, our idea is that the one or the many actually exist independent of the individuality that's created by bodily configurations. Each atma is individual and can become one In a loving sense, like i become one with you, I love you and I are one, but uh, love for it to be really, to uh, flourish, to to really exist, requires two as much as it requires one. So unity and diversity is what we advocate, rather than just unity. We advocate a spiritual unity, a oneness that doesn't do away with diversity. It does away with false diversity uh, created by... uh, Um, material mind and senses. So, I I mean, my point is that a doctrine of impersonalism is a doctrine of knowledge. Hmm? There's an Atma. The Atma is is one with Brahman. We even say that the Atma is one with Brahman in some respects. But to take that to an extreme, absolutely one, Hmm? there's philosophical problems with that. Hmm? How could the one become Eluded, hmm? for example, but there's also it's also more appealing, I think, to have a dynamic sense of oneness. As far as the atheists go, if you can get them to accept Brahman, you're doing good. You know, you don't have to worry, then. That's a, yeah. so. Then you go on from there. Does that help? Yeah. Yes. Um. It's,
1: I was thinking how you were talking about the um, material world's always expanding and always revealing herself. Um, and it kind of reminded me of how the Swarup Shakti is kind of always expanding to glorify Bhakti and kind of like in a shadow.
0: Way. To facilitate Krishna.
1: Yeah, like a shadow way in this world, kind of like Maya's is always expanding, kind of to showcase Bhakti in new ways
0: eyes um, expanding to showcase Bhakti in new ways
1: well like how the guru the Vaishnava in each um, as more is revealed about the world or as things change it just kind of glorifies Bhakti and her dynamic nature to always kind of
0: like so he likes to go to the, the likes to go to the Mahabhag with the perspective yeah. <laughs> material nature Is the maidservant, right, of the bride of Bhakti? Right, (laughs) that's true. You know, you could look at it like that. Mm -hmm. Yes.
1: I had a question about sometimes I don't really remember in which scripture, but sometimes we hear that when Mahaprabhu is on the planet, and I think Krishna as well as. Lord Ram, um, that when they leave the planet, it empties out the entire universe. <laughs> and I was just always wondering, how does that you know, play out? How does that work?
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know, there are some statements like that. Everyone was liberated when Ram was here, or something like that. Um, I think that... Um, Sometimes some of the scriptures answer um, questions that might come up in people's minds. Um, um, Similar to your question is, what if all the souls become liberated? Then what? As if, uh (laughs) uh-oh, problem. Maybe we shouldn't, you know, go down this path. Maybe I should stay here, so the world can continue to be. <laughs> you know? I don't know what the logic of that is, but sometimes it's expressed as a concern. So there are a couple of, uh, I think maybe Markandeya Purana. I think uh, is there Markandeya Purana. Some text like that it does make a statement that 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 the jivas are. Um, That all the jivas not manifests in every, every, um, breath or outgoing, uh, okay, I'll put outgoing breath of, of Vishnu, which is the manifestation of the world. Uh, some of them remain in him, something like that, and come out in another one. So, or he creates another one and, and fills it up. But there's, we know there's no creation of the jivas. So these are answers for people who need like a simple, Answer. Oh, okay. If there's any, he's always creating more. Mm -hmm. So sometimes the Puranas will say things like this for simple-minded people to get them over a hurdle rather than giving them a full explanation. Uh, And the scriptures will make statements that are, um, I suppose... They do, they do take some license for exaggeration, I want to say, to make, make points at times. But the hard underlying, if you will, fact or truth is that there are unlimited souls in the material world. So there's no, that's why Vasudev Dutt wanted to liberate the whole world, take the suffering of all the living beings on his, on his back, uh, so that they could all be delivered as a compassionate Vaishnava. And Mahaprabhu said, That's a joke, he said. Is good. I like it. I mean, that sentiment is good, but it's like if you liberate one she goat from a herd of cows or something. And anyway, he's saying there's unlimited universes. Um, so, um, yeah, I think that's the underlying truth. So, statements like that may be somewhat of an exaggeration to get people in on board or uh, something like that. Um, or you could just look at it like they've set it in motion. It'll all happen in due course. Uh, everyone will be liberated. But the problem is there's no finite number to everyone. So, <laughs> you know, it's forever going on. That it, get, everyone's going to be eliminated, but there's no number. In then in the, in the, what do you do with that, right? So... You got to kind of put those those things together. Does that help? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes.
1: Thought of like an example of how, um, uh, like, how this knowledge of quantum mechanics, consciousness, and mind is a recent thing um, to see you. Explore it and kind of showcase, you know, like, show it in, like, a beautiful way. Kind of like how Bhakti is the highest, gun. like, take all this new knowledge and um, explain it in a simple way, showing how this really is all pointing to God, and you know, just a way that the expansion of the world is kind of showcasing Bhakti.
0: I think you're saying what you said earlier or something like that. (laughs) 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 Okay. Sounds good. We'll stop there. Shishi Varadamadavakita. Varbhaktabrinda Kita. -kita. Varpremanandhi.